This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Exterminate! Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that's mastered the power of statics. My name is Gep, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And uh, I'm sure there's a few people who showed up for Next Generation. Yes. And listening to our Next Generation stuff, and you're like, yay, I found a Next Generation podcast. And now you're like, what in the heck are Daleks doing here? <laughs> well, you see, uh, depending on your uh, interpretation of the link to comic book adaptation, uh, the X-Men... Uh, have uh, links to uh, Star Trek's Next Generation, uh, and through other Marvel sort of connections, uh, they also have connection to Doctor Who, and it's all the same continuity, right? Yeah, and everything is that kid imagining a snow globe. <laughs> you can say it elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Which I believe Doctor Who has been attached to as well. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure most things have. I would have to look up something that has yeah <laughs> there's a whole big chart it, it's 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 hard to keep track of <laughs> it's fun i think it's i think it's the best uh, example of why canon is stupid and you should just stop worrying about it because <laughs> it's all in the head it's one kid it's fine <laughs> so yeah i i repeat this over and over and over because it's a thing we do but every 10 episodes we give ourselves a bit of a break so mm -hmm. that we can do something else, get away from just talking endlessly about Star Trek, get some one-off episodes for new people to jump in without having to listen to two years of back episodes. Indeed. So uh, this time we're not doing a movie per se. We are doing a feature-length episode of Doctor Who because that's how Doctor Who used to be. Yes, uh, it's it was very serialized with, you know, between one and like, I think, 14 episodes uh sort of adventures where you know this this is the big you know uh, you know conflict that we're going to be facing here and it's going to be many many episodes and about half of them tend to be padding mm -hmm. i remember my first experience with classic doctor who which was my first experience with like watching doctor who generally because this was years before new who mm -hmm. uh in high school one of my teachers decided he wanted to do a sort of sci-fi literature class oh nice and he showed us the uh, the Baker Dalek thing. I forget if that was Genesis or... Yeah, uh, the Genesis but, of the Daleks uh, is uh, probably his most famous uh, adventure with them. Yeah, so he showed us Genesis of the Daleks because it has the big emotional, uh, morally ambiguous decision thing in it, and we could discuss it in class. Uh, I think he also didn't know how long old Doctor Who was because <laughs> we wound up watching it for three consecutive classes. <laughs> It's like, oh, it's it's still going on. Oh, yes. The thing was like three hours long, all told. So, yes. <laughs> uh, it's it is an epic, uh, do, uh, you know, uh, Doctor Who story, uh, uh, as well as you know, Dalek adventure, uh, and it is perhaps one of my favorites. And if we weren't doing this one today, I would have suggested perhaps we would <laughs> do uh, that one. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it's high on my list as far as you know, ones that I find as both you know, uh, you know enjoyment as well as like stuff that's kind of like impactful as far as uh, classic dark who's goes now i was always very surprised by this because uh you know the old tv wasn't all like this 
Mm-hmm. People talk about old television like it was all weird, but Doctor Who was very specifically these weird serials, which yes. is why you have to be used to this long thing. Because when I was a kid, my mom introduced me to one of her young obsessions from when she was watching old British TV, and I watched so many episodes of The Avengers, and they are all one-off half-hour stories. Yeah. Or so, I think 50 minutes, actually. But like, and that that was this year of TV. You know, mm-hmm. that aired in the 60s. Yeah. So <laughs> Doctor Who was kind of its own thing. You know, uh, I've heard people sort of describe it's like, yeah, it's, it's basically the sci-fi soap opera. Yeah, it very much is. Also, if you want some really stupid old sci-fi adjacent stories, watch The Avengers. Yes. <laughs> they have some of the dumbest sci-fi villains. It's like old kind of sp- like spy sci-fi. You know, mm-hmm. somebody has a laser cannon or whatever, but it is so amazingly worth it. Do they put it on, a, on the moon and call it a Death Star? No, they didn't put anything on the moon. I don't think they had space travel yet. British TV had a, a, a number of uh, uh, sort of spy sort of shows there. And uh, The Avengers is one of the ones I, I'd like to, you know, uh, give a try at some point. I just haven't gotten around to it. Get the collection with uh, with Deanna Rigg in it. It's the best place to start. All right. Cool. But, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about Doctor Who today. Well, we can't, we can't yes, uh, we meander too far. <laughs> uh, oh, I can meander. I can meander all over the damn place. <laughs> Just watch me. <laughs> uh, but, but but this thing is, you know, uh, six, uh, almost half hour episodes. It's, it's, it's almost Lord of the Rings level here. <laughs> it really is. Though... Um, Given speaking of meandering, I would expect that if you focus on mostly the important plot parts, the synopsis of this is going to be about ten minutes long. Yeah, uh, I do put a few extra things in, the, in my <laughs> synopsis uh, for this one here, but uh, you know, I try to keep it sort of bare bones when I can. You know, there's a certain amount of so and so enters the room, gets angry, then leaves. Sort of stuff that's like, all right, mm-hmm. I'll kind of gloss over some of that because it just keeps happening. Yeah, a decent amount of people just staring at each other. There's a lot of weird weirdness so we should probably uh before we get too much in the uh, cast and crew i'll mention that this is a adventure of doctor who that technically no longer exists yeah uh as i understand (laughs) from a bunch of stuff that i'd done before this actually but also research from this episode um tv wasn't considered important enough to save in the 60s Um, Mm -hmm. home video hadn't been invented so there was no particular reason for them to think that they would ever need any of this again. Reruns also didn't really exist as a thing. Yep. It was most television was in fact recorded live. It wasn't necessarily broadcast live, but it was recorded live. So, you know, it's sort of a uh, we got some film, we're going to roll it through the uh broadcast device there and then it goes in the back room. Yeah, and, editing was not really a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so uh, if it's a crap episode because no one can do their acting well, well oh well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's like but, leads to some fun stuff. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Just, I, I was watching a thing a bit ago, a review of a lot of these older ones. And he said it leads to some flubbed lines. But the line that apparently was flubbed was like the best burn I've ever heard the doctor do to a companion. <laughs> and it's like... Um, I forget that they was something about some like maybe a caveman or something thawing out from ice. And he mm-hmm. goes, won't he melt? And the doctor says, oh, no, not at this temperature. <laughs> Plus, it's far too cold. The doctors like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so flubbed lines are very great. And I think that they should do more of them in modern in, ones. 
Yes. Because <laughs> having everything perfect, you know, it's it's good, I guess. But sometimes <laughs> a little meta humor uh, you know, at the expense of, you know, uh, you know a, a perfect product is kind of nice. Uh, and uh, also, I guess, helps with the... the I guess separation between uh, you know the reality that is we're being sold and our own lives because maybe people take too much uh, you know too much media too seriously these days and having more flubs might actually help counter that. So, good. <laughs> but yeah, this uh, this era very specifically, and from what I heard and found in my research, um, Patrick Troughton, who this is him, second Doctor Patrick mm-hmm. Troughton. You'll get into more cast stuff in a minute, I'm sure, but. Uh, more than half of his run on Doctor Who was destroyed in lack of archiving. They yes. intentionally destroyed. They were like, we don't need this anymore. Burn the tape. Yep. <laughs> we need more room for uh, stuff we're not going to keep either. <laughs> I, I guess one of the things that actually helped save uh, a number of early Doctor Who adventures, uh, in part or in total, was that uh, the they were exporting the show to other countries. So occasionally... In you know, in the years since the initial destruction of various uh, recordings, some of them have been found in overseas, uh, you know, back rooms or something like that. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, we still have a copy of this that you know was that we just never re- bothered to return to the BBC because no one asked us to. <laughs> and so there's a you know from various countries from around the world, uh, they've uh, managed to uh, reassemble some episodes, uh, you know, almost to their entirety or beyond or or to entirety. Uh, but for this one, they weren't able to do that. However, there was something that was recorded by uh, basically folks at home, uh, the audio. So we actually do have the complete audio of this adventure uh, and, uh, you know, as well as all the other missing adventures because people really liked Doctor Who and without, you know, uh, video recorders, they still were able to make use of tape recorders. And so, the, you know, just set up a microphone next to your TV and turn on the show and there you go. Yeah, I find that one of those fascinating technological crossover points. Nobody had home video yet. The idea that you might want to rewatch television was not a thing for people, but mm-hmm. people had audio recorders and this is so close to the to the television radio crossover point mm-hmm. that people would still have been very used to the idea of only hearing the audio of something. Indeed. So the idea of re-listening to a TV series as audio would have been a pretty good option for someone who wanted to re-listen to their favorite show. Yeah, so people made these recordings so they could do exactly that. And then later when, like, maybe we should have not destroyed those episodes, people were like, hey, I got the sound files. Uh, You want those? And so uh, they were able to, for uh, this adventure and a few others, uh, actually recreate the entire adventure through animation just by uh, making use of the sound to, uh, you know, be part of, the, you know, the, the what they have left of the original and combined it with uh, some animation here. Now, the animation uh, is either sort of a love it or hate it sort of thing. Uh, I actually kind of find it endearing. Uh, and uh, it is, I guess, kind of interesting how uh, the human characters and the Daleks are sort of uh, animated in this adventure where the humans are full... 2D sort of almost, uh, I don't know, like almost flash animation sort of style where they're very sort of rigid and, you know, the, you know their, their mouths move, of course, and they have expressions, but it's very much, this is the flat expression for when they're 
desperate or angry or happy and then their mouth moves sort of as its own thing and then their mood changes their face uh, you know changes all at one sort of moment uh, so it's it's a little weird but uh, the Daleks are actually uh, animated via th- uh, 3D so uh, they look drastically different than all the uh, human characters around them yeah it's kind of strange when they have the complete there's a couple scenes in here that are just the Daleks and they are also in a 3D rendered environment mm-hmm. and it, it it's a completely different show all of yes <laughs> But yeah, if you haven't if you haven't watched or looked up any of these things, it's very much the new it's the new style of cheap animation. The yes. the older style of really cheap 2D animation was like He-Man, Hanna-Barbera stuff. Then that had its own aesthetic. Um I'm forgetting my years. Sometime in the Early mid 2010s, <laughs> there was a crossover from uh the old way of doing hand, from hand-drawn animation had a crossover into some more modern vector-based animation programs that everyone switched to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like that weird crossover point that you hit when like the Simpsons intro changed. They yes. redid <laughs> it in more modern vector-based animation programs, which this is all done in a vector-based animation program with a lot of tweening. It's it's fairly obvious. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then it's done in, very, in a lot of series of 2D stills with minor tweening animation and uh no real attempt at doing anything other than a 2d still it kind of reminds me of archer in a way oh but yeah um, with the flat animation and no attempt to make the flat animation look like it's not flat animation <laughs> and so it kind of becomes its own style as a result <laughs> yeah uh this is a uh, an episode that's come back from the dead Ooh, it's a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting. I mean, it it is a little unfortunate because everything that I read does suggest that, especially for this era of Doctor Who, uh, Patrick Charlton's performance was 90% physical acting. Yes. uh, uh, Which leads to a bit of a problem when he's a still animated figure. (laughs) Yes, they do try to uh, showcase a little bit. Uh, However, some of it they couldn't get to be up to what they wanted as far as standards goes. Uh, and so when this was uh, actually uh, released as the animation uh, originally, some of his uh, physical acting bits were actually cut because they're like, ah, it's just too awkward. We can't animate it right. Uh, <laughs> but they eventually put them back in. It's all right. I'm, I'm done. I've waffled on with everything that I know about this. You can, you can do cast stuff if you want. Right. <laughs> so uh, we should probably uh, start off with uh, the, uh, the writer here, uh, David Whitaker. Uh, who is Sounds familiar? Yeah, is a uh, a person who has done a lot of you know old uh, Doctor Who, uh, though uh, you know Doctor Who uh, and the Daleks as well, which was a uh, attempt at a a movie take on Doctor Who to sell the Daleks because Terry Nation, who invented the Daleks, is all like, I want to make more money. <laughs> oh yeah, there was a weird copyright thing with the Daleks, wasn't there? Yeah, and so, you know, Terry Nation would, you know, get paid any time they show up, for starters, and, uh, you know, like, oh, you're the guy that's sort of, you know, involved here, so we're going to, you know, have you uh, head up the Dalek episodes whenever you're free. Uh, but eventually starts just sort of, like, reusing his scripts, and they're like, you need to give us something new. <laughs> but uh, David Whitaker, uh, you know, is you know did a number of... Uh, you know, a classic who sort of adventures here, you know, Crusades, uh, the Power of the Daleks, uh, you know, which is what we're covering today. Um, I think something about uh, the Wheel in Space, maybe? But, uh, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. 
But, uh, you know, he's also uh, someone who did a, a bunch of other stuff uh, as well. Uh, you know, like The Far Country uh, or, uh, you know, what's this? Uh, Mr. Rose, Subterfuge, and, you know, Showtime. I think these are all British shows. So that's <laughs> why so I've not heard of any of them. Uh, so uh, as far as actors goes, uh, we have our main uh, fella uh, who is playing the doctor, Patrick Troughton. So uh, what do you know about pa- Patrick Troughton, Gepwin? Well, I did a lot of reading for this episode. So <laughs> I know that he was a fairly well-known character actor before this. Mm-hmm. Um, he took over in what was a really weird ballsy move for television at the time because the original doctor was getting a bit too old to continue playing the doctor on tv and instead of doing the standard television thing which would either be to cancel the show or try to cast a look-alike and pass it off as the same person Mm -hmm. they decided to put in what we all in modern who now know as regeneration which yes. is the doctor just changes bodies every once in a while. But this and, is the first yeah. time anything like that had ever been done for anything. So it's so, a pretty ballsy move. But it's like, he's an alien. We can get away with it, right? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Which, you know, uh, it being sort of a, you know, the Doctor Who in total being sort of a very loose and fast, a fast and loose uh, sort of sci-fi, you can kind of pull stuff like that whenever you like in order to sort of justify uh, doing something either from a uh, production standpoint or you want to do this one cool plot thing. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as uh, Patrick Troughton's uh, roles, he was in tons of stuff. Um, uh, Toad of Toad Hall, he was Mr. Badger back in 1953. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was uh, uh, Robin Hood uh, in Robin Hood, a TV miniseries. Uh, That's also... true, first TV portrayal of Robin Hood, apparently. <laughs> Uh, he's uh, he was also uh, uh, in uh, the Scottish play, where you know Macbeth. His, some of his earliest uh, roles were like at, as you know, short of Shakespearean sort of stuff. Like in Hamlet, he was Horatio back in the forties. Um, so yeah, he he was uh, doing stuff for, uh, quite a bit before Doctor Who, as well as after. Uh, he was in something called Bognor in eighty uh, one. Uh, he was in the two Ronnies in '84, not the 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 Ronnie, but he, um, he was also in the two Doctors in Doctor Who after his stint as the Doctor. Yeah, one uh, of the first of uh, those crossover episodes. Indeed, they did those occasionally, and yeah, you know, he was like, ah, I'm cool with doing, keep doing this here. Um, uh, and yeah, so uh, unfortunately now he has passed away as of '87, but. Yeah, he did a lot of cool stuff, uh, you know, over the years. Uh, we also got his companions, uh, you know, Michael Craze is playing Ben. And uh, really, I don't, it's sort of another thing where I don't know what uh, a lot of the stuff is here. Um, yeah, he was in uh, Dixon of Doc Green, uh, Target Luna, uh, the, the Dick Emery Show, and other things. But he was also in Zed Cars. <laughs> I've heard of that one. Yes, <laughs> I, I think we've uh, joked about that one uh, uh, previously. It's not as uh, infamous as the FBI, but you know, uh, there is uh, Pamela and Davy. Kind of a similar thing going on. The Saint, uh, Second City uh, reports. Um, Be my guest, Fatty and George, uh, where she was a bunch of episodes there. Uh, she hasn't really acted since the uh, '80s though, and uh, she's unfortunately also passed away, which is kind of you know. 
the case with a lot of the actors here. So we also have a number of guest characters for this adventure. Uh, we have uh, Nicholas Haltry as Quinn, Robert James as Lesterson, Matt, uh, Richard Kane as Valmar, Edward Kelsey as Resno, uh, Steve Scott as Kettle, Anna Will uh, Willis as... Oh, oh, sorry, I messed this up. Uh, you know, Pamela Ann Davey was Janley. Anna Wilkles is Polly. Sorry about that. Ah. Um, and uh, I'm not seeing on my list here Bregan's actor. Whoops. Never mind that. <laughs> I, will say, I don't know if it was the animation or if it was just the style of the time. This is a lot of weirdly interchangeable looking white dudes. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Resno and Valmar, it's like, yeah, they kind of look the same. Some guy with you know awkward look to him and dark hair. Uh, <laughs> they have different name tags, though, so that's, that's useful. <laughs> yeah, the name tags were very helpful, I yes. will say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, I guess the only folks that don't have them all are uh, the Doctor and his companions and the Daleks. But well, the Doctor know, has a name tag; it just doesn't have his name on it. Yes, <laughs> he is the Man of Mystery. Well, oh, what was it? Inspector? It wasn't Inspector. It was something else. Examiner. Examiner. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it was weird because why didn't they just call him Inspector? That was my question. <laughs> well, it's sci-fi. You know, you have to change things up as far as what their naming is concerned here. Probably. Anyway, so yeah, there's a, a lot of actors here, and uh, unless you want this uh, adventure to go on for, you know, this uh, episode to go on for ages, we should probably actually get uh, going forward here. Anything? Yeah, uh, it's one of those old timey shows that just had a lot of characters who show up for a lot of interchangeable stuff. This is something that in modern TV, several of these characters would have been just like bolted together to mm -hmm. streamline the casting. It's like, oh, we we need a, an extra book here. Uh, you look like you might be able to act someday. Uh, get over here. <laughs> Versus, well, you know, some characters like this guy doesn't need to be two different people. This yes. could be one character, and it would be fine. And, and uh, I'm in a like, cynical mood today, so, we'll, so uh, we'll see how that so, goes with old TV. <laughs> so uh, you know, uh, Kebble is probably uh, someone you don't care about. That <laughs> I literally do not remember which one Kebble was. Uh, he was the uh, the third string Mook uh, who uh, gets beat up at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, shall we get started with our synopsis? Yes. Off we go to the world of the something. Uh, the, the power of the Daleks. We open with the last moments of the previous adventure. The TARDIS at the South Pole, the Doctor fiddling with controls, and then falling down to regenerate into his new incarnation. After the always amazing title sequence, Ben and Polly are arguing about their unconscious friend. Ben is skeptical of this whole regeneration stuff. The Doctor wakes up and starts having a bad time. Once things have chilled a bit, he starts fiddling with the controls and they're off to the next adventure. The Doctor's cloak and ring fall off as the argument about who he is continues. Ben tries to confront the Doctor, but the Doctor's too in his chest of artifacts to care. He pulls out a chunk of metal that, that prompts him to say, Extermination. He also pulls out a recorder, a musical instrument, and starts playing a jig. Yeah, he keeps playing this thing. I know yeah. this is like a reoccurring thing with his character for some reason. Like he just pulls out a recorder and then annoyingly plays a recorder. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's been sort of argued that, uh, you know, that's part of his uh, means of uh, keeping people off balance in terms of taking him seriously or not. Because if he seems a fool that just plays his little bit musical instrument constantly to annoy people, then he's no threat, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what... I don't know what Ben thinks is happening because he just watched a guy transform in front of his very eyes. But the doctor's being very unhelpful in any of this. He keeps referring to himself in the danged third person. It's like, who are you? It's Anna. Do you know who we are? 
Well, don't, don't worry you about know? it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while catching up on his own diary, the doctor decides to wander outside. Outside is a very pleasant mercury swamp. After some precarious wandering, the doctor stumbles across a guy. The guy starts to introduce himself, but promptly gets shot by a mysterious figure. The doctor, after some bafflement, takes the guy's badge. The badge declares, Vulcan, Earth Examiner, accord yeah, every first access. Person, first person we see in the entire episode just is like, oh, hi, and then he's dead. Yep. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, that was over fast. <laughs> the uh, mysterious figure with the gun seems about to kill the doctor too, but Ben's calls to the doctor prompt the murderer to flee for the moment. The doctor, now wearing the examiner badge, gets knocked out by the murderer. The attacker leaves in his hand a button, a piece of evidence. Sometimes later, uh, a couple guys, Quinn and Bregan, are inspecting the doctor. Ben is brought over with an unconscious Polly. Ben, being awake, is introduced to the guys. Bregan is head of security, and Quinn is the deputy governor. And I guess they just wander into the swamp sometimes. And they were not expecting an earth examiner. Bregan mentions to Ben something about Lesterson's space capsule. <sighs> Meanwhile, Lesterson is polishing some metal. Janley pops in to inform him of their being an examiner about. Lesterson's like, whatever, they can't stop me looking at this capsule, ha! Huh. Janley is more interested in having a room for some sort of group that she argues represents better people to run things around these parts. So that's maybe some hint of what her loyalties are about. Lesterson doesn't care about politics, though. Just the technological miracle before him, the capsule. It's a pod. It's a pod with a door in it. Yes, a pod with a door in it. <laughs> that seems uh, weirdly large on the inside, we'll find out later. Huh. The doctor and his companions are set up in a waiting room. Ben wants to recap what has happened. The doctor wants to play a tune instead on his recorder. Hensel, the governor, drops by to say hi and to make it clear that they weren't expecting an examiner. The doctor, taking on the role of the examiner, starts examining Bregan in a very awkward manner. The governor mentions rebel groups. Bregan mentions the capsule. The doctor is more curious about the latter. Huh. Later, the doctor is inspecting the capsule. He spots a piece of metal that has fallen off the capsule, and he mutters, Exterminate. While Lesterson explains how he'll open the find. One sci-fi gadget used later, the capsule opens, and inside is an empty compartment. The doctor's like, okay, enough of this for tonight. Everybody go home. Later, the doctor wanders back into the lab. Using the mystery piece of metal, he pokes a button inside to open the inner door. Inside is a is some Daleks, immobile and covered in cobwebs. There's also a spot where there's no dust, implying a third, now missing Dalek. Huh. They also briefly spot a Dalek outside its armored chassis. Oh no! Stingered's music! Though we don't know what this is yet, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, so, someone who has uh, followed the Dalek episodes from, uh, you know, Early on, I would yeah, make a guess, but, you know, as far as, you know, uh, folks tuning in for this, this adventure, some sort of weird alien creature. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I wasn't sure how much we were supposed to know at this point, because they did make a pretty big deal about the fact that this thing was out of its armor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, those in the know will be like, hmm, this means that these armored, you know, the, the, the Daleks that we're seeing here just ha hanging out, they might not be dead. Do, do, do. The second episode has Ben getting a light, where he's spotted by a guy named Resno. He'll be Resno will be important for like five seconds. They figure that Lusterson has probably been inside the capsule already. Meanwhile, Quinn tries to see the examiner, only to get hassled by Bregan. This keeps happening. Lusterson drops by his lab. The doctor accuses him of hiding one of the Daleks. 
The doctor wants the Daleks dismantled. Bregan, you have who, a Dalek under your coat. <laughs> Bregan, who just kind of showed up, is like, you have no authority to order this dismantling. Come on. After everyone's gone, Lesterson checks in his closet, where he has, in fact, put the third Dalek. And he gets to muttering about his experiments. Bregan brings the doc and his companions back to the waiting room. They're given fruit, one of which has a listening device in it, which the doctor breaks after Bregan's gone. Once they can speak freely, they discuss the intrigues and get everyone up to date on what's going on. Meanwhile, Lesterson is trying to power up the Dalek. Back with our trio, Bregan returns to let them know that, nope, they can't see the governor right now. He's, like, in bed or something. The doctor decides to just radio Earth and get help. Lesterson has wired up the Dalek and starts to power it up. It begins to move, and it looks at Resno. The doctor visits the comm room only to find the comms are done broke. An unconscious guy's there, and Quinn is lurking in the shadows. Bregan just drops in to find the scene, and Quinn holding a tool that could be used to damage the comm equipment. The doctor presents the button he's been planted with, back early in the swamp. It appears to be from Quinn's outfit. Bregan's like, oh, time to arrest you, Quinn. Sorry. Lesterson keeps powering up the Dalek. The Dalek keeps eyeing up Resno. Then it shoots Resno. And Janley gets over to him and is like, oh, he isn't dead. Just trust me. He's fine. He's just a little unconscious. Ben and Polly argue about Quinn's arrest. Bregan drops in to bring the trio to the inquiry that next morning. Lesterson is giddy about the results of his experiments. He asks about Resno. And Janley's like, oh yeah, he's still very fine. He's just off recovering. Trust me. At the inquiry, Hensel tries to get to the bottom of things. Hensel's the governor, by the way. But uh, I forget if I mentioned that. Anyway, <laughs> but, but Lesterson shows up and to show off the Dalek. It's open, it has been removed, so that's good. So no shooting anyone right now. The doctor's still freaked out, though. It also appears to be following orders. So Lesterson's trying to do the cell. It's like, these things will be great for the colony. We can do all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. These things are going to solve all our problems. The Dalek then speaks and declares itself their servant. Episode 3 has Lesterson still trying to sell the Dalek. Hensel and Bregan are happy, as it might mean they're able to handle their own stuff without help from Earth. The Doctor's like, I order these things destroyed. These things are dangerous. I'm going to call Earth as soon as possible. The inquiry continues after everyone else is gone, and uh, Quinn keeps defending himself. Eventually lets on, he's sent for the examiner. So him being the attacker of the actual, of, you know, of the governor uh, people, and all this stuff here, it just doesn't make sense. Come on. Bregan's well, like, sent oh. for the examiner so that he could kill him. He has a personal beef. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, you know, Bregan's like, oh, but you do still have a motive. You want to be governor, and you're just messing things up here in order to cause chaos and take over. Hensel's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, Bragging, you're the new deputy governor. So, hooray, promotion. Quinn, go to jail. The doctor fills with some tech while the trio discuss what to do. They spot Quinn being taken off to jail, but they opt to go to Lesterson's lab instead. Lesterson is testing the Dalek's chemistry knowledge. The doctor drops in. Lesterson wants him to leave. The doc offers a truce. Janley then gets a mysterious phone call. While Lesterson continues his testing, the doc sneaks off to fiddle with the power, trying to overload the Dalek. Lesterson stops him before he's able to destroy it. Janley meets with Bregan. Seems she's working for him, but intentionally stirring up the rebels. They talk about the Dalek's gun and how powerful it is. Seems Resno actually was killed, after all, and she just dropped his body in the swamp. 
Yeah, I love it. They they have the gun, and it's like this is the Daleks' super secret weapon. Like, how powerful is it? Well, it killed a guy. <laughs> Good enough. Janley <laughs> <laughs> runs into Polly and directs her to the comm room. Upon arrival, arrival, a guy named Valmar, who looks like Resno, grabs her and knocks her out. Ben finds the doctor in the waiting room. Ben's upset that Polly's gone missing. And the doc, but the doc is more concerned about the Daleks, so, you know, Polly's probably fine. We don't have to worry about her. But Ben really isn't having it. The Dalek asks Lusterson about a machine, because to help, it must know everything. After an explanation about the device, the Doc is like, hey, I could build a better version. I just need some more materials and more power. So can you get those things for me, please? Lusterson, happily, goes off to get the supplies. The Dalek then turns up its own power while no one's watching. The Doctor spots Lusterson and figures it's time to head back to the lab. The Dalek is like, hey, you can't be here. Then the other two roll out of the capsule. Now all three are active. The Doctor's like, hey, um, let's cheese it. Because these guys have guns still. The Daleks that have a nefarious, then have a nefarious chant about conquest. Oh no. Hensel gives Lusterson full authority to experiment. But he's, you know, heading out for a while. So, you know, be good, everybody. Don't try to, like, use our power. Reagan drops by the waiting room to accuse the doc of being a fraud. The doctor's like, oh, but if you know that, then you must have been the guy who shot the real examiner. Ha! At an impasse in their mutual animosity, Reagan leaves. Ben spots a ransom note to leave Lesterson alone so Polly won't be hurt. The Daleks have disarmed themselves. Lesterson's like, yeah, I'll give you all those things you want, you know. Like all that power. So the Daleks are like, cool. And then the Daleks start chanting about getting their power. Episode 4 has Lusterson a little freaked out by all this chanting. So he lowers the power of the Daleks to show that he's still in control. The Daleks are, okay, enough with the evil chanting for now. We'll be good. Also, here's your meteor stone or um, uh, computer design thingy. Reagan, now wearing his new SS-inspired uniform, is having Valmar fiddle with a TV phone. The doc shows up with Ben to present the ransom note. Reagan's like, okay, I'll totally search for Polly, but, Polly, but you know, it's a big planet. A Dalek shows up to give Reagan some water. The doctor then notes that the Daleks are moving on non-metal services, so that's odd. They usually need some, you know, some sort of metal flooring or something like that to operate like bumper cars with their static uh, power systems. Huh. Hansel calls Bregan, and Bregan learns that the governor won't be back for a couple days. Neat. There's some rebel shenanigans, but the doctor's more interested in the Daleks just running about. Also, there's three Daleks plus one now, so there's four. Huh. The doctor notices the rebel's secret messaging with the notice board. Hmm. Lesterson's like, hey, Janley, the Daleks, they need more stuff. Uh, but, you know, he's worried about the Daleks being rather independent now. Maybe the doctor was right. Janley's like, oh, you know, Resno. He's dead, actually. And if you don't want people finding about that, uh, you know, you were responsible for his death and because of your carelessness, you're just going to go and keep, ex you know, continue with the experiments. So, you know, keep doing it. The doctor shows up to ask about why there's four Daleks now. He mentions they can do anything given the right materials. They're like super geniuses and stuff. So be, be careful about that. Lesterson starts to panic. Janley calls the guards and says the doctor and Ben attacked Lesterson. So take him away. Also, Lesterson, you look tired. Hmm. 
Oh, uh, hey, Valmar, time to install that power cable so the rebel can use the Daleks in their own efforts. The doctor figures out the puzzle with the notice board. It's directions to a rebel meeting in the rocket room. They hide out in that room, and the meeting begins. Valmar and Janley show off the modifications to the Daleks' gun so they can control it now. Also, there's a shadowy figure who's <laughs> the boss, I guess? Yeah, After just the... in the corner. It's hard yes. to see with the animation, because he's just a blacked-out figure. Also, I love the gun. They have a controller. Like, we can control the gun. It's a, it's a physical, old-school remote control. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's got a wire attached to the Dalek with a button. <laughs> just, you know, uh, push this button, and it's set to murder everything, and flip it back, and it's safe. Yeah, it's like great security. Great security, guys. <laughs> just hope they don't you know, grab their own remotes. Hmm. Um, so after the demonstration that they have control over the gun, I guess, the rebels start talking about Polly. Ben, hearing this, breaks out of cover and is instantly captured. The mysterious figure, after everyone else has left, it, you know, it turns out to be a Bregan, and he calls the doctor, who's still in hiding, to come out, because, hey, I know you're there, come on. Bregan's pet Dalek tries to shoot the doctor, but the doctor has a high dodge skill, so he just, you know, gets out of the way of that beam. Bregan and the Doctor banter about their plans until Bregan has the Doctor arrested and taken away because this secret beating of rebels apparently has a guard outside. Um, but, you know, at least uh, when the Doctor ends up in his cell uh, next to Quinn's, it t turns out the uh, locks are total in nature. Huh. The Doctor chats with Quinn, getting him updates on the plot. He even reveals that he's not the real examiner. <sighs> Lesterson sneaks around his lab and listens in on some Daleks. He notices that they're conspiring together. Also, there's some, seems to be a real, uh, you know, a whole number of them now. He sneaks into the capsule. Inside, he spots the factory where the Daleks are reproducing. It's kind of a cool scene of 1960s era sci-fi. Lesterson is scared out, out of his mind as he watches the growing crowd of screaming Daleks. It's very kind of Frankenstein-y. It's a very cool little yes. sequence. <laughs> uh, and, uh... Yeah, this is probably the uh, one bit of the uh, you know, the whole thing that is kind of like the money shot, where you're like, wow, they, this, this is like a, a massive improvement of what they could have even pulled off in the 60s there. Uh, and it's just kind of breathtaking, honestly. <laughs> like, there's a, this is an evil Frankenstein lab factory here with spewing evil constantly. Yeah, burbly jars. Yeah. One of them has a cattle prod thingy that they use to wake up their little mutant dude. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, uh, the central part of the Dalek is a biological mass that looks kind of just like a, I don't know, a, a weird uh, half-cooked hamburger patty. <laughs> <laughs> In uh, episode five, Lesterson tries to seal the capsule. Gently drops by to find Lesterson all panicked. He shuts down the power to end the threat of the Daleks. Also, let's get some lasers to dismantle them. He don't care about being blamed for Reznor's death anymore. His attempts to call the examiner go nowhere, and the Dalek comes outside of the capsule and points that they can now store power, so turning it off doesn't quite work now. Lesterson freaks out and leaves. He goes and runs around looking for the examiner. Janley brings Polly to the capsule along with the goon. You know, also, the dogs want to know exactly when all this work on their new power cables will be done. In jail, the doctor uses a glass to make tones while he ponders the Dalek's power problem. Lesterson stumbles in to rant for a few moments about what he's discovered. Doctor asks for some more water to change the tone of his glass after Lesterson's, you know, taken away. He's like, yeah, I kind of know what's going on. 
I just want to get out of here now. <laughs> Bregan is presented with a ranting Lusterson while a Dal Dalek fiddles with a cable for the power supply. Just kind of holds up a wire. It's kind of funny. Uh, once the Dalek is gone, Lusterson asks for the governor. Also, he says that Janley is in league with the Daleks. Janley and Bregan gaslight him hard, and then they have Lusterson taken away. Polly continues to be held by Valmar and that Kebble goon as they work on the power system. Valmar is like, oh, the Daleks will be our friends once we're in charge. Polly retorts with, Daleks don't have friends. Come on, guys. Hensel is back in town a little early and notices a guard with a gun. That's weird. The doctor releases Quinn's lock with the right tone and they put the guard into a cell before they escape. Hensel confronts Bregan. Bregan reveals that the doctor is an imposter. Also, Bregan's in charge now. Also, the Dalek here, uh, go and shoot Hensel, please. The Dalek's confused to us why humans kill humans. But Bregan just wants, you know, obedience from everyone. Valmar questions the need for more power. The Dalek is like, hey, we'll be more useful with more power. Honest. Definitely Dalek... not suspicious. Yes. Not suspicious at all. <laughs> uh, the Doctor and Quinn show up. They discover Polly and, uh, you know, and the, uh, the goon. Uh, and then Quinn, like, gadgets a dude and, you know, in the resulting scuffle. The Daleks opt to wait until the humans start killing each other. Then more evil chanting begins. This time, exterminate! Quinn, Polly, and the Doctor find Hensel's body. Bregan drops in to say, oh, you know, martial law now and go to jail, please, you guys. The Daleks go get the go order to start their rampage. The end of the episode five. But episode six has the, uh, the dogs only getting into position to murder everyone. Jolly tells Bregan that the revolution has, in fact, won. Cool. Bregan, though, is like, hey, we should, like, kill all the rebels so they don't threaten me. Valmar listens in as Bregan ups the pressure on Jolly to make sure she's on board with the plan. The guard escorting the doctor and the company gets a punch in the face, and they escape. Valmar visits Ben to tell him that what's going down to the murder and all the rebel plans and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Bregan does a broadcast to try to put the blame of Hensel's death on the rebels. Doctor's group reaches the waiting room and hook up with Ben. The Daleks then start burning people as fighting breaks out. Janley meets Valmar. Janley's like, hey, we'll use the Daleks to win. That, that'll work, right? The dog's like, oh yeah, totally. Uh, lead us to the middle of your group. The Doctor, after a brief venture in the halls, returns to the waiting room to push Ben and Polly out the window before a Dalek drops in to kill them. Janley brings a Dalek to the fight. It kills one of the uh, Bregan's guards. Then it starts killing some rebels. Oh no! Dr. Ben and Polly return to Lusterson's lab. Lusterson pulls them into hiding. He's like, hey, the, the Daleks are just taking over now. That's, like, fine, I guess, right? Janley then gets death raid. Lusterson mentions that Valmar has set up a secret power cable, so he might know where it is. Or he could just ask the Daleks. They find Valmar, and the doctor starts letting on he has an odd plan. Bregan panics as no one answers his calls. Everyone's apparently being killed or something. We see numerous people now dead in the, you know, or dying in the hallways. Bregan then calls to the Daleks to try to get them on his side. Ben and Polly hide in a closet. Quinn confronts Bregan and tells him to bring more guards to the capital to be used as a distraction as the doctor engages his plan. The doctor, now with Valmar, starts getting to work meddling with the power systems. But a Dalek shows up to mention that they have established their own power systems. But hey, the old cables, we need to like deal with them and disconnect them. Also, they've been moved? Huh. Lusterson pops in and proclaims that he is the servant of the Daleks. The Daleks kill him as thanks for giving them life and you know, all that. 
but this keeps them focused away from the doctor for a little bit, allowing him to fiddle at the power box. The Daleks try to shoot him once they notice that. But instead of, you know, killing the doctor, they blow up the power box instead, spurring an overload of the Dalek systems, causing them to all start exploding. Bregan grabs the gun from Quinn, but Bregan gets shot by Valmar, who's just done so done with Bregan here. Quinn's like, let's rebuild together, start a new beautiful future together. Valmar helps explain what the doctor did to beat the Daleks by creating a feedback loop in their static power systems, just overloading all the, them and causing them to go poof. Doctor's like, let's leave before they bill us for all the damages to the colonies in their power systems. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, Doctor gathers up companions, get in the TARDS, and it leaves. And then as it's gone, a broken Dalek's eye starts to light up. The end! This is very much still that era of TV where it's stuff's going to happen, and we'll explain why later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we kind of got some hints that kind of established some of the parts but how it all fits together yeah we're only going to have a weird explanation that kind of ties it all up later you know <laughs> there's a reason uh the curse of the fatal death has the doctor going i'll explain later several times <laughs> yeah power of the daleks yeah power curse of the fatal death was a very very good doctor who spoof special that came out a while ago a little adventure where uh numerous actors play the doctor uh the master's there there's some daleks and everyone just being very silly. Uh, also, they're on a planet where they uh, communicate via farts. Yeah, <laughs> it's an amazing special, and you should look it up. It's pretty available. But I would also recommend The Power of the Daleks. So, uh, so Gepwin, uh, have you figured out the, uh, the number one, uh, I guess, lesson of this uh, adventure today? Is it don't trust Daleks? Uh, <laughs> after fashion, yes. Uh, <laughs> Though I suppose uh, making it a little more broader of uh, don't trust fascists might be a, a more uh, universal sort of lesson there. <laughs> You've got um, a few things. You could don't trust fascists. The Daleks and the rebels are both painted as fairly fascist. Yeah. Got um, rebellions are going to be turned to benefit the powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, your own weaponry can and will be used against you. Yep. And uh, maybe, you know, poor Lesterson's uh, le particular lesson is, you know, being obsessed about science, you know, that's fine, but you might want to pay attention to what's going on around you, too, to make sure, it's, you know, what you're doing isn't going to be abused by uh, nefarious folks. Also, this was a very, there was some very British stuff in this that I don't even know how much they intended or how much just, su just sunk in there from the sheer Britishitude of the thing. Yep. <laughs> the, the dismissal he keeps dismissing that the daleks are a threat by going like what you think they're smart or something it's like you think they can talk and then they start talking it's like well now you think they can reason and they build him a super machine it's like well i'm sure they're somewhat intelligent yeah <laughs> it's like you know, humans are just awesome and superior and the and the, the dog you know the dog's like yeah we're your servants and we're totally not better than you hmm <laughs> Uh, also, uh, you know, get us all the stuff so we can become, you know, a terror upon this planet. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, you know, the the main reason I wanted to cover this is actually that, yeah, you know, that first sort of lesson there, that no matter how much you think you're in charge, when it comes to fascists, the only thing that they are interested in is growing their own power. Uh, and so never ever trust them or make try to make, think you can make use of them for your own goals 
you know, if your goals be, you know, high in, and, uh, you know, uh, idealistic, less Lestersons, uh, or as, uh, you know, secure your own power like Reagan and the rebels are. That, they, you know, these are folks that are very specifically in it for themselves. And any sort of cooperation they'll give uh, to you is a temporary alliance at best, and more likely than not being used to further their own power so that they can basically undo you and everything that you like. I do find the Daleks to be an unfortunately clunky metaphor when you're dealing with fascism. I understand that we are still really soon after World War II. We're mm -hmm. still in the middle of the Cold War as much as England, like the Brits were involved in that. And as such viewing the fascist allegory as essentially people who are genetically engineered to be evil does make a certain amount of sense for the time period yes uh... but removing that amount of nuance because you you have the line and it's the one that everyone points to and i'm sorry i'm i'm a cynical person who was raised on modern tv that tries to think about stuff and it baffles yeah. me that people mm -hmm. consider this a acceptable level of discourse <laughs> but the one line that everyone points to in the episode is when the darlet goes why do humans kill humans <laughs> and to me that just reads like the freaking facebook posts of here's a dog and a sheep loving each other why can't humans get along <laughs> yeah this is a uh, a very i guess i guess recognizable line from the you know the adventure here uh and i guess you know the you know one interpretation is that the dalek's asking because it would be convenient if the humans just killed all them you know each other so the dogs didn't have to but you know Reagan's like, oh, just follow my orders. Come on. <laughs> but I think that the potency of the question and the thing, it's like the dialects are all working together because they're genetically engineered fascists and mm -hmm. the humans aren't. But you don't get an exploration of the question because the dialects are too simple of a fascist metaphor. They aren't even really a fascist metaphor. They're just an evil entity stand in. And it removes the actual nuance of the thing that you're talking about which is both that like you know the fascists the people in charge the party members are out for their own power and you can't really use that for your own ends at all but one of the things that brings about people allying themselves with fascism and the idea that people in power who maybe aren't fascists start to ally themselves with fascist ideas is that they they rile up existing anger and frustration in a population mm -hmm. and for some reason they are so full of themselves that they go you know this unruly mob of angry people i just cr created intentionally and got really really angry will only ever work for me and certainly will have no unforeseen consequences yep <laughs> i guess uh into a certain extent the daleks in terms of their origin in the uh, you know as far as their you know creation for the show you know we're very specifically meant to be stand-ins for uh nazis uh because yeah terry nation their their creator 
as like, you know, I kind of want someone who is a recognizable bad guy that allish British folks can uh, quite easily sort of point to. It's like, yeah, we, we see what this is. This reminds us of this thing that kind of just happened a few years ago. And uh, so this will be you know, evil, I guess, uh, cut out for our uh, antagonists here. And uh, so there is a certain level of haphazardness to uh, their sort of uh, usage here that uh, the, you know, the Daleks are of good stand-in, but also a bad stand-in, you could say. <laughs> uh, because, you know, they are so very specific and simple uh, that it's like hard to sort of uh, tease out some of the nuance. And so that's, I guess, one of the uh, reasons that having a character like Bregan also in the story is, you know, useful in terms of sort of making uh, good allegories and things like that. That this is someone that is not genetically engineered to be super evil. He's just someone who wants, you know, power for himself and will get rid of anyone who's going to be a you know, possible threat to that. Yeah, they bring they bring nuance into the Daleks later. But as they're being introduced here, Dragon's um, the only actual fascist mm-hmm. in the episode. He is using he's blatantly using the rebels for his own ends, and then as soon as they become inconvenient to him, he has them killed. Indeed. So they, it and that hap, we have that sort of thing in historical uh there's historical examples of things like this, like I'm going to ally myself with this rebel group in order to gain power, but then when they start asking for the like actual stuff they were fighting for, they become inconvenient to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, uh, Daleks actually work a bit better in this than in some other applications because they have always only sort of struck me as more almost more of a nuclear weapon allegory than a straight fascist allegory because they the the amount that they're genetically engineered to just be pure evil is essentially they are simply living weapons that they happen to be living weapons that can turn against you yes if you try to make use of them, don't be surprised if there's a little fallout. Or a lot of fallout. So I guess I haven't actually run into too many folks uh, making that particular observation, though. Uh, which I guess is kind of interesting in and of itself. Because I guess there is so much known uh, information about the their creation and their reasoning for why that folks don't tend to necessarily think about what other sort of uh, you know, allegories can be sort of uh, you know made use of in this case. That, you know, because we have the answer from the actual creators, the, the author, as it were, that we're uh, not thinking about what else they could sort of represent. And I guess that's kind of a disservice to uh, mm-hmm. you know, critical thought about Doctor Who and other sort of things that where this sort of pattern happens. A little um, bit. <laughs> so, uh, a.k.a. maybe not uh, death, full death of the author here, but uh, at least sort of put him aside for a little bit so we can maybe... Uh, Think about other things going on here. Well, it definitely depends on which story they're being used in. True. As well. Because there's, there's two, there's like three separate things that they tend to be used for. Uh, the third more so in more modern incarnations. Uh, they are either living weapons, and they can be seen very well as an allegory of very powerful weapons and how those can t- turn against you usually not in a literal sense but once you create a weapon it's there and there's no guarantee that no one's going to be able to use it against you it's out mm-hmm. of sight of your control yeah uh, um, yeah it doesn't necessarily matter that in the text of the show that it's is under its own control at that point or daleks in general sort of control it is beyond your control so be careful about that yeah we we're gonna hit this in a later episode of star trek pretty soon but 
um, right now, because of where we're at in our own technological discourse, we're very concerned with the idea of fully autonomous weaponry. But mm -hmm. in a lot of sci-fi, no one was really thinking of a fully autonomous weapon at the time. But weaponry is an inherently double-edged sword, to use the pun. It can be turned again. Once you have a weapon, like someone else can use the same thing. It's never one-sided for long. Mm -hmm. So it's giving them their own autonomy in a story is a very literal representation of that idea. Indeed. Uh, the other thing that I see them used for a lot, which wasn't in this, but um, there's, there's several storylines in which they turn against their own leadership Indeed. because this is in fact the place where they work most as a nazi allegory but not an actual nazi allegory it's a critique of fascist ideology mm -hmm. because each of the daleks is a perfectly programmed foot soldier who fully believes in their fascist ideals to such an absurd degree that they will in fact turn against their own leader or creators when they start to think about their own power too much because that goes against the idea that the Dalek as a foot soldier is the superior being. <laughs> and it does point out, it, it can be used to critique the central sort of um, conflict that you hit in a fascist system where you are considered to be a superior to everyone around you each individual cannot be any more superior than any other individual in this context even though they all are supposed to be and then you also run into this problem of like the true believer idea where you've instilled a certain ideology in your followers and you hope that you can manipulate it but if anyone believes in it too strongly they will side with the ideology that you're using to manipulate them over you who never believed in the ideology in the first place. Indeed. <laughs> so uh, I, I should you know, mention that in uh, later adventures, uh, uh, Davros, the uh, in-canon uh, 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 sort of creator, gets gunned down by the Daleks himself. Uh, then they resurrect him, and I guess there's a civil war that happens, and, <laughs> and some of them are behind Davros at that point, and some of them are not, and, and then their homeworld blows up. The Daleks but, get a little weird. Yes, <laughs> and the one that's not going to be the one that's not going to be used for a bit is kind of the Daleks as seeing the humanity in your enemies sort of thing, mm -hmm. where you should have compassion for them even though they're emotionless, genetically engineered to be evil robot things, or sometimes they have cause to question their own existence and what it is that they are actually trying to attempt to do here. And there's a not well used because they are not human. They are said to think completely differently from a human. They are genetically engineered and programmed to be this specific thing. But there is a inherent conflict in the way that humans think about other humans and in the way that a fascist ideology tells you to think about other humans. Got the uh, I guess the. One of the key ports, uh, portions of their in-universe uh, sort of inception was that they there's an attempt to make a creature that would be fully on board with its own survival at the expense of everything else. And the sort of folding forward uh, interpretation of that means that 
any being that is not a Dalek is thus a threat and must be exterminated. Uh, and so the core bit of the ideology then uh, is that, you know, anybody that tries to, you know, exist for, for starters, but also tries to control them is potentially going to put the Daleks at risk and they can't have that. Uh, so if you want them to fight on your side in a conflict, they're going to eventually like nope out and just start murdering everyone else because they don't want actually to be, uh, you know, on either side of uh, any sort of direct mm. conflict there. You know, unless it's to promote Dalek interests specifically. And I do think it's interesting when you're looking at it as just if you're if you're trying to view them as a fascist allegory in this episode, um, it doesn't work super well because one, they're being constantly used by the only character who could be said to be fascist or at least power hungry. But also the one thing that everyone pointed out about this episode when I was reading things and watching reviews was this is the first time that the Daleks are shown to gain power th- to gain power through manipulation and guile rather mm-hmm. than brute force. And in order for that to work, I understand the story writing of the time. But in order for this to work, every other person in this entire episode is an idiot. Yeah. He's a complete <laughs> idiot. The Dalek is there. It's like, of course I will serve you right up until I can kill you. It's like, what was that? Nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a lot of just conveniently unlistened uh, to bits of uh, dialogue from the from the Daleks where it's like, you know, the Dalek is, is about to declare itself superior and even gets the first syllable out, but then corrects itself and it's like, oh, I'm your servant. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I am superior, sir, superior. <laughs> I have a speech impediment. <laughs> Don't mind that. Also, we're going to start chanting letters. That's okay. <laughs> and they they could have leaned into this a little bit more, but I, I still cannot tell whether this was intentional. The, the You could have written an interesting commentary on how um, people in these kinds of positions and with this sort of... Um, these these sort of biologically based superiority ideas so completely underestimated the people that they were oppressing that they fully believed they were incapable of doing anything to them. Mm-hmm. You know, Lesterson's like, I I can turn your power off. You you can't fight me. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh. these Daleks mm. <laughs> don't have the same kind of intelligence that I do. They're just too they're too stupid to cause problems. Yeah, so we don't have to worry about them at all, even if they do start chanting. <laughs> That's you know, it's all, obviously just a uh, you know a, a, a for loop that they can't get out of that just keeps running over and over again. Because <laughs> they're totally not uh, biological beings deep down inside; they're they're robots, right? And this robots has a are double. Also- uh, this <laughs> has a double problem. Like that in itself is a, you can have that as a story thing and it mostly says don't underestimate people or Mm -hmm. you'll be sorry but um the idea that this happened to the extent that this happened historically there were definitely people who espoused these ideas but we we wind up in this bad position where because of these ideas and because of the proliferation of of needing to hold up these ideas that the people that you were oppressing were naturally servile or too stupid to do anything about it or or weak um, we tend to not actually discuss the times that people did try to break out of horrible situations and the ways that people were fighting back. Like some worked, some didn't. And not all were like big rebellions. There are, in mm-hmm. fact, like 
massive American slave rebellions that happened and were bloodily put down in a lot of cases, but they happened all the yep. time. We just don't talk about them anymore and act like everyone just went along with it. But there were also a lot of passive kinds of resistance that were happening, refusals to work, bare minimum workload requirements, like just like uh, mass escapes or even slow escapes, like mm -hmm. slow trickles of escapes. Like there were a lot of ways that people were fighting back all the time. But we have this this underestimating idea that proliferated through where we we fully cover up these parts of history in order to maintain the idea that the people were just going along with things until someone in power decided to stop doing it because we we found out it was wrong yeah <laughs> i guess uh, in terms of this episode we do kind of have uh you know some quiet you know uh, business going on with the daleks themselves in order to you know do that sort of small trickle where they start reproducing and you know they're being super careful about not getting spotted in groups of more than three so that you know no one will take notice of what's going on you know the doctor already has by that point but still uh, and so you know this is sort of a i guess a thing that people are going to re uh you know resist their you know general uh you know oppression slash being controlled any way they can figure out and uh you know, just because we're not noticing it or we're not talking about it years and years later doesn't mean it didn't happen. Though you run into a problem when you're looking at this as a oppression metaphor in any regard because the Daleks are definitely a evil high-level threat to humanity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of right that they be treated this way because they, they are unavoidably evil. They will try to kill you for no reason. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, as far as you know, metaphors goes, it's a little complicated on that particular front, yes. So uh, maybe we shouldn't try to uh, you know, link the Daleks to uh, uh, the Underground Railroad. That, that, it just yeah. gets awkward. <laughs> you do wind up with a weird thing where you have no idea what their power level is supposed to be for this episode. Yep. Because <laughs> like, there's only, what, like 14 people in this entire colony that Pretty we close. see? And the and like, Daleks need like an army of 50 to take this on? Yeah, you know, there is, I guess, a certain level of assuming that there's a lot more people around than we actually see. But, you know, it's a Doctor Who production from the 60s. <laughs> they only have so much money for so many people. And, you know, they kill off half the extras as is. So, <laughs> I know that, that some of this is stuff that happened later. I'm not familiar enough with where they had the Daleks at in the first season. But from our current understanding of Daleks, one of them could have taken out this whole place. Pretty much. Now, uh, I know this is, you know, far future humanity sort of stuff, but they're still running around with, like, sort of 60s era machine guns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, they really did not have uh, much expectation that weapons technology would continue to advance in any way. Later in Dark 2, it's like everyone has ray guns past a certain point, but uh, not these guys. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, you do have to laugh, too, at the, the ultimate threat in the galaxy. And when you see actual clips, the cartoon actually made it look better. But mm -hmm. their guns in these things are like a weird little egg beater looking thing. And then the screen goes um, negative. negative. <laughs> they, they just put they just negative the screen. There's not even a drawn in laser beam or something. Laser beams actually coming from the whisk uh, from the Daleks uh, is uh, not really something you see until uh, uh, New Who, really. It, you know, like even when they have, you know, plenty of, uh, you know, uh, 
movie magic sort of t- uh, tech, uh, you know, in the 80s, it's like, yeah, we're just going to do the negative effect because everyone's kind of familiar with that's how the Daleks beam works. You know, this sort of effect happens, and if you happen to be fully on screen while it goes off, well, you are now dead. So, congrats. But the Dalek, ha- one, uh, but the Doctor, again, has a uh, really high dodge score, so he can sort of avoid that most of the time. So, uh, what do you think about Lusterson and his obsessions? Lusterson was scientist dude, right? I have trouble keeping yes. all these white guys straight. Um. <laughs> yes, uh, he, he's the one that's the scientist that's obsessed and uh, looks a bit gaunt. Now, see, that one you can read into the weapon metaphor a lot better mm-hmm. because uh, you wind up in this... I don't think it's a real thing, but you wind up with this idea that a scientist is just going to get so obsessed with doing their science stuff that they're not going to think through the real world implications of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to make the mega death ray and go, no one would ever use this thing. Right. Right. <laughs> um, oh no. Someone used the mega death ray. Uh, so I guess I am. Yeah. You know, his sort of obsession, you know, does sort of remind me a bit of uh, you know, the, the Manhattan project and some of the uh, stories that kind of came out of that, that, Past a certain point, once they were sort of in the work, they were fully on board with thinking about it as the work. But, uh, you know, to even get to that point, though, they still had to sort of make the uh, the moral calculus of, is this something that I want to do, that I want to contribute to, that will, you know, not make the world a worse place as a result of uh, my efforts here. But, you know, and so there is still, in terms of real-world scientists, that ethical question does actually get thought about, but you know, let's just say this sort of has the, uh, the, the a reverse order on things. He wants to do the work and then he'll worry about the ethics of it later or try to yeah, which, just the, we, justify the ethics later. <laughs> that's how we keep imagining that this stuff works. They don't even worried about the ethics. They're so obsessed with the idea, mm-hmm. but like, this even, is just in amazing. Like, even in something like the Manhattan project, the U.S. government decided they wanted to build a superweapon and recruited all of the top physicists in the country specifically to build a superweapon. Mm-hmm. This wasn't one guy in his basement going, it would be really cool if I could split an atom and it would blow some stuff up. Yeah, it's and like, I'm not uh... going to think about how that could be used. Yeah, so it was a you know, whole team effort and uh, not just one guy who happens to have... Uh... You know his priorities backwards, uh, and so it's not very much. It's it's not at all a, a good metaphor for that uh, in terms of what actually happened, but it is That's sort a, of you know a, a trope work. With this is people what people sort of expect scientists are like, but they're see, not. The tr- the trope as metaphor could work. It's just never disconnected enough from the individual and the way that it clouds our vision of scientists Mm -hmm. because as a just narrative trope if you're just looking at it as a metaphor completely disconnecting it from reality then this is a metaphorical representation of the idea of science in and of itself yes because science individuals but yeah science exists as a way to find out new things some of those things can have good implications some of them can have bad implications depending on how they're used science doesn't care science is just a way of examining the world to find out things when you put that onto the individual scient 
test, it becomes a problem because it's usually not made very clear as metaphor. It's in there as such a trope that it becomes the way that we start thinking about scientists in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as someone who is a real scientist, you know, we do actually have more nuance than uh, Lusterson here. That we uh, do think about the why and not just the how. Yeah, you just think it would be really cool to make those black holes at the CERN Super Collider and watch the world get sucked in and take notes. <laughs> Whee! <laughs> Always reminds me of uh, David Brin's Earth. Uh, I hate you since I read the book. Anyway... <laughs> Also, so, uh, the whole microscopic black hole thing always weirded me out. It's like, it would be a microscopic black hole. It's like, okay, but wouldn't that do uh, nothing? Pretty much. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it will only be as massive as the energy you put into it or it, what it can suck up. And if it's too small, it's going to literally fall between, you know, parts of atoms and not hit anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're probably going to be okay if it pops up. Also, if it's charged, we can still contain it with magnets. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, did you know that black holes can have a charge? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so does uh, that mean a magnetic field is unaffected by gravity? That's a little bit more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember now a paper about plasmas being generated around black holes. Yeah, when you got me distracted. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool stuff, though. Uh, maybe I should try to get into work on that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, th this uh, adventure, I guess has attempts at metaphor but they are uh, i guess super awkward uh, are there any other sort of uh, metaphors we could sort of uh, poke at here that <laughs> it's trying to do but kind of fails um i guess uh, there's always uh, hensel the uh, kind of uh, jerk but you know trying to do the right thing sort of a uh, governor who is being sort of manipulated that He's maybe just there yeah it's i guess a metaphor for civilian controls that are being uh you know, you know, are being unaware of the danger in their midst. Uh, I mean, you actually can't, you can't really read much into the rebellion or political machinations because you just don't know anything about anyone at yes. all. <laughs> you don't know why they're trying to rebel. You don't know if this is a good or bad governor, what the political ends are, why any of this is happening in the first place. So do you remember how we talk uh, fairly often about, you know, you know, Star Trek in the in the, in the uh, 60s and 80s couldn't really address certain things. This might be sort of one of those sorts of things where if we have the rebels actually have a clear cause, then either as a result, we're going to be sort of casting them in uh, as either obviously the good guys are obviously the bad guys. And this adventure doesn't want to do that. Uh, or, or alternatively, to have them have, uh, you know, a particular stand would perhaps be one of those kinds of things where hmm yeah the bbc is not going to uh put forth something that you know challenges uh you know queen and country as uh the uh, the end all be all and awesome good thing in the universe so you know you run into a problem which i don't it it see it works as a generic conflict mm -hmm. having them be rebels specifically actually creates a bit of an issue uh yes because you can't have them be trying to take over the colony for bad fascistic reasons because that 
mixes up your fascist metaphor with the Daleks. But you can't have them try to take over the colony because of abuses of power or workers' rights or anything like that, because Britain in the 60s was not going to have none of that. Yep. (laughs) It's like, we're barely tolerating our labor unions as is, and uh, if anyone wants to try to go slightly further, they're the communists and bad guys. By barely tolerating, we mean sending in the army. Yes. We can't have uh, them actually have an actual stance on anything. They're just the conflict group which you know is it i guess it fits for the story i guess but it does sort of limit our uh, the ability of it to you know have more and more nuance which would have been nice but well, it's interesting how many things from this era have here's a generic rebellion it went mm-hmm. bad yep don't rebel kids <laughs> these rebels are fools because they trust the bad guys hmm well, then don't rebel and you won't have to trust the bad guys. Trust us. So that's kind of lame. I do think it's interesting that uh, one thing that we didn't get to talk about was the character. This is the first appearance of Patrick Troughton as the Doctor. Indeed. And, um, everything that I read, because I'm super not familiar with this era of Doctor Who, was he is what has become the Ur-Doctor. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. The uh, Before him was Hartnell uh, playing the Doctor... Uh, Hartnell was sort of a crotchety old man sort of uh, figure, uh, you know, you know, walking around a little uh, hunchback and you know being, you know, smart and manipulative at times, but very much more like your weird grandpa. Now, Troughton's like, I'm gonna kind of uh, manipulate things and be kind of a fool at times to throw people off guard. Um, I got sort of a alien sort of way of interacting with people. That can be off-putting at times, but can also be very direct and to the point. And if people are, you know, not being fools like everyone in the colony is, uh, then they, uh, you know, then they can sort of catch on and be like, "Oh, this guy's actually right. He's weird, but he's right. We should probably pay attention to what he you know, is talking about, so that you know we can solve the actual problems we have, as opposed to you know our own agendas." Hmm. I can see how they never quite hit this balance fair like as well again. It's like. Again, mostly having new who as my as my metric, but like uh you know, Tennant was very acts a fool that you know he's always got a complete handle on the situation, no matter what's mm-hmm. happening. You're just gonna figure out how later. Yeah. Um Matt Smith and later you kinda wind up with the situation just sort of resolves itself around them. <laughs> a bit. <laughs> And I see this really neat balance that you can strike with, oh, they didn't have any, they were just running around doing random stuff the whole time and stuff seemed to just work out for them. But did it? (laughs) How much were they actually planning any of this? Hmm. Sometimes a lot, sometimes none. Sometimes it looks like the other option, actually. (laughs) Mm. I can see that being a very difficult thing to right so i see why it would be hard to hit that balance again but it's a very interesting place to land with a with like the buffoon character it's like mm-hmm. is he just super lucky or is he a genius you just, there's, there's a line that you can't quite figure out uh, so if uh, get when you and uh, listeners uh, if you want to sort of have more of this sort of uh you know uh, ca- catch you off guard sort of doctor uh Troughton is uh, of course sort of the er example as you said uh Coy's, uh seventh doctor is also pr- uh, pretty uh good on that uh, especially after his first season sort of fits more into the uh, quote chess master role uh where he's kind of a goofball at times 
But uh, at other times, it's pretty clear that he's already figured out how to fix the situation before he even shows up. So <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I just kind of need to pop in and go through the motions and it all went according to plan that I set up 500 years ago or something like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, you know, I would recommend uh, you know taking in more Trout and stuff if you're interested. Uh, you know, it still has very 60s uh, Doctor Who sort of... Uh, vibes going on there which some folks can't get behind but it is a uh, still a, a good time i'd say uh i would say it's we, a bit slow <laughs> yeah a bit slow um i did think about doing the war games uh instead of the power of the daleks here um but you know as great as that adventure is uh it is also 10 episodes uh and some of them are can probably be cut pretty effectively mm. uh if you uh you know had the editing tool back in the uh in the 60s there um but uh i'd still also say that's a pretty dang good adventure there um i think this era for me is is worth looking at um do not try to give it your full attention yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is won't work yes uh you know trying to delve too deep as uh, we often do on watches of tomorrow does sort of run you know expose some of the nuts and bolts on the hood that don't quite work but uh, it's still, you know, something uh, good to sort of uh, take in and sort of uh, more passively uh, experience, I suppose. Um, well, very old television, something that's been completely lost now in binging, streaming, rewatch, rerun, you know, home video DVD style television. Yeah. Um, you had an entire week between episodes to completely forget everything that happened except for like the three important things that stood out. Mm hmm. So uh, there's a reason in my uh, synopsis there, you know, we have this character sort of catch everyone up onto what's happened and what's important. <laughs> you know, I could have gone into the full details of what they discussed in that like three or four minutes of, uh, you know, uh, uh, dialogue, but just summing it up at because I'm already doing a summary is much more efficient. Um, but it does take a certain amount of time out of each episode to sort of, uh, you know, get things uh, circled and pointed to there. Um, Only... Only other thing that I was going to say with this thing, it's completely unimportant, but um, this isn't a swamp. Yep. <laughs> keep saying swamp. It's not a swamp. A swamp has trees in it. Well, uh, maybe those weird uh, uh, circular rock uh, outcroppings, uh, maybe those are alien trees. Must are the alien trees, yeah. <laughs> a swamp it's... has trees in it. It's a kind of wetland. It's a specific kind of wetland. Mm -hmm. It's one with trees in it. Yes, uh, the certain uh, pH level too, right? Yeah, and a lot of wetlands are that. Bog is very acidic. Swamp is slightly acidic and has trees. Marsh has is a uh, flooded grassland. Yeah, what what this sort of environment is, them calling it a, a swamp is probably just what they default to because they don't have a better term for it. <laughs> this is why companions didn't last long in this era because you shouldn't probably stand next to that much mercury. <laughs> yes. Uh, the doctor at one point does kind of stand in a pool of it, but, you know, he's the doctor. He can get away with stuff like that. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, Polly just like, I'm going to hang out next to this mercury and accidentally breathe in some fumes and now I'm unconscious and probably going to have health problems now. Great. But yeah, it's, I guess they uh, wanted a swamp so they could have a place to easily hide all the bodies. Yeah, I mean, a pool of mercury, fairly good place to hide bodies. Yes. <laughs> Who wants to drain know, that, really? I'm sure it would float. I'm pretty sure it would float. I think mercury is a lot denser than water. Yes. <laughs> so maybe if you like... Uh, you know, put something even denser inside the body. Um, everyone uh, 
swallow your neutron uh, matter here uh, pills here and <laughs> so you sink the bottom of the of the so-called swamp <laughs> so uh so yeah i guess that's most of the stuff i was uh, sort of uh pushing for because you know you know metaphor is working or not working you know it's something that they try in this sort of era of doctor who and uh they can only sort of push it so far and uh and sometimes it it works sometimes it doesn't but uh i guess the the obvious lessons are being attempted and you know for a very low level reading they can work but trying to go too much deeper does kind of expose a lot of the uh you know behind the scenes uh sort of thinking there that doesn't quite hold up i don't think we have time to go into this now but i think we should at some point do a whole retrospective thing where we we do a few more episodes of this and do a hard juxtaposition of the ways that proto 60s british sci-fi failed as compared to how proto-american sci-fi was failing because mm -hmm. both failed and i think looking at how they failed in different ways is very interesting yeah you know, some of it's uh you know definitely cultural uh sort of uh you know you know reasons there others is perhaps just practices or even chance um you know there was uh you know still some uh, writers who you know crossed the pond as they say um but uh there was still a lot of sort of doing this in isolation sort of uh, stuff here um well i do think it's interesting from an american perspective um a lot mm -hmm. of the doctor who from this era doesn't really feel that much like a 60s show as we understand it because yeah. it is so unconcerned with the russians yes <laughs> yeah there is occasionally uh you know some uh, references to the cold war uh, in doctor who but sometimes it's like it's like yes and uh, we you know talk to the americans and the other ones about this thing that's happening <laughs> you can't even save the soviet union at all yeah, it's what? <laughs> kind of interesting with the it's kind of interesting to see the perspective of someone who was in it as an ally to one side but was still rebuilding so was very mm -hmm. much sort of uh on the sidelines of the cold war yeah we don't want to be directly involved here for the time being but you know it'd be nice to you know still have an ally and uh back them up when we need to but we also kind of want to do our own thing yeah america and russia didn't wind up with as much like material damage from the war as a place like england did so they were still rebuilding <laughs> yeah they you know there was plenty of russia that was you know uh, definitely ravaged there but that was like mostly on the rule side of things uh, rural side of things there uh while uh you know you know major uh, uh cities were uh, besieged um you know but there was still a lot of russia that was untouched directly from the war uh because you know russia is a big country so stuff on the uh, the european front sure but uh stuff that they have you know closer to the ural mountains beyond yeah that was almost wilderness out there for starters but what factories they you know did have set up uh you know were kind of still there and able to sort of churn out things to help rebuild what they had left. All England's like, yeah, like most of our country got bombed. Like we're having trouble finding places that we're not. So <laughs> yeah, they didn't do a ton of that in this episode, but I think it's interesting to see how they're still very concerned with fascists in a way that yes. uh, America should have been, but was not. Yes. Uh, hopefully though, uh, People being concerned about fascists uh, remains ever in vogue uh, going forward, and we don't let up uh, and uh, you know have a uh, too much of a go at uh, you know running things. So you know, don't let that happen, folks. So Doctor Who, yeah. Well, I yeah. think that's 
history, failed metaphor, fascism. Probably about time that we get into the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Unfortunately, I can't make a really good uh, British accent to do a uh, British version of the same, but uh, I'll see what I can do in terms of uh, handing out prizes to our uh, winners today. So, uh, the various points have been tallied up, and we can start handing them out. So the uh, first one is the Marx or Bust Revolutionary, which goes to Janely and the Rebels, I guess. Though their end goals are a bit nebulous, but... You know, we're not actually mentioning them, so they're probably something the BBC would not approve of. What do they win, Gepwin? They win a tailor. Because, like, I, I get it. It's fun. They had fun uniforms, but, like, well-tailored military uniforms are just are just fascist. You can't get away from it now. They're mm-hmm. the ones who care that much about aesthetics. Maybe the, the, their whole revolution should have been about, you know, allowing some variance in fashion, because... You know, on this planet, everyone has to wear these uh, jumpsuits, and uh, they're all kind of the samey. Uh, <laughs> our uh, second prize is the Wash Di- Wash's Dinosaurs Prize, which goes to Bregan for his betrayal of the uh, rebels once they've helped him get into power. Sudden and but inevitable as it was. Uh, what does Bregan win, Gepwin? They win the, the longer cord on their little button thingy. <laughs> like, if you could turn the guns off, it probably would have worked a lot better. Like, I get the safety measure, but when you have to stand literally two feet from the thing that you're um, trying to make not shoot you, it's kind of a problem. <laughs> Indeed. And maybe a few more of them, because, you know, there is a lot of Daleks, and only a few of them uh, put, you know, were installed with the limiter. Hmm. Our uh, third prize is the Evil Twin Prize. Surprise, surprise. Which goes to the Daleks, because they keep making duplicates of themselves, effectively evil twins, and they're all evil, too. So, you know, that's sort of a thing. What do they win, Gepwin? Right, just because I really want to see it, they get one of the glasses with mustaches. <laughs> so I want to see them hang a little mustache under their eye stock to be the evil twin. <laughs> I would so love that, actually. Hmm. So, uh, BBC, if you're listening, make sure that happens at some point. Our uh, fourth prize is the For Science Prize, which goes to Lusherson, because for a while he's just quite fixated on studying the Daleks to the exclusion of everything else, which, you know, allows horrible things to happen. Uh, what does Lusherson win, Gepwin? Lusherson wins some models. It's a very good way to get out that weird frustration and focus on something. You can build a little model Dalek and not have to make one with a functioning gun. Yeah. Uh, I believe uh, uh, Mr. Bean has uh, featured one of those at one point. Uh, you know, so maybe get you one of those. Hmm. <laughs> Our final uh, prize today is the Antifa OG, which goes to the doctor because he is lasers focused on finding the Daleks right from the start. And that's a good thing. So the Dalek, you know, the Daleks, they're kind of his number one bad guy and the Dalek ain't going to take much from them. So, you know, what does the doctor win, uh, Gepwin? Doctor just wins shutting down all the debate on this stupid thing. This <laughs> tolerant society cannot tolerate intolerance. And, you know, Indeed. Like, these things are going to be bad. <laughs> Don't try to tolerate them. I'm telling so, you right uh, now, they, they pop up. 
So uh, keep an eye out for uh, Daleks or fascists or uh, sub anything in between, and uh, do your best to uh, you know keep them from gaining any power. So uh, you know, or I guess overload their power to make them explode. That works too, I guess. I Go. guess that is one place where the fascist metaphor works. When you see one, you <laughs> got to get rid of them, or more yes. show up. <laughs> exactly. Because uh, once you have one, they're going to be uh, eager to recruit more or turn other folks to uh, their ideology or to a similar ideology. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, keep an eye out for that. And uh, the rest of us here will keep uh, racking up some points and uh, take us away, Gepwin. Yes, thank you all for being here and putting up with the self-indulgent slight comedy that we call the galaxy's favorite game show. So, Gapwin, what are we covering next week? Now we're back to Star Trek. Oh, uh, then I should not do the Dalek voice now. <laughs> Silly yeah, me. Can you do a Michelle Barrett impression? Uh, not really, <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Neither can I. My voice doesn't go that high. Um, so, we're back to Star Trek. We're in a weird one. Um, yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> it's not a bad episode. It's one that I have enjoyed from time to time, especially as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Coming of Age. Yes, it's um, essentially uh, Wesley takes a test. Yep, it's time to have him tested at, uh, to see if he's uh, you know super smart or ultra super smart. I think it's interesting how many shows had the teenage stand-in character go do something that was basically look it's school but it looks a lot more fun than your school yep <laughs> so maybe so, you envy this person going to school because look how cool the stuff they get to do is they're playing with the with a video game computer it's gonna be cool stuff and you can have some neat alien friends to hang out with and there's gonna be you know some meta tests or something like that as well and you're you're gonna have a lot of fun trying to pull it off even though it seems scary right. at the time some incredibly age-inappropriate flirting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ooh, but uh, that might just be, you know, the kind of writing we have here at this era of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 We also uh, run into uh, uh, a guy that wants to inspect things. Oh, the inspector. He's back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The uh, examiner. Whatever uh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> he is here to examine the Enterprise. <laughs> Uh, Dexter Remick, I believe, right? <laughs> yeah, Remick. You get a setup for some later stuff. Interestingly, the yeah. first season has a lot of setup for clunky, clunky setup for later things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's you know, not uh, Doctor Who levels of continuity here, but there is uh, continuity on display. And uh, yeah, so that I, they give up on later. But yeah, yeah. I guess to a certain extent, though, this is something uh, close to a miscellaneous. We need to get all this stuff in an episode so let's kind of get it together and it's not bad so you know so yeah coming of age it's a it's an episode of star trek <laughs> yep it's definitely that it's an, it's yes. inoffensive it's inoffensive in its in its blandness indeed <laughs> i guess uh tune in next time for some more star trek the next generation's coming of age yeah and you you should watch it for the most undeservedly good set of editing 
that they have in any of these episodes. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure why, but they have like the most amazing seamless transition section of editing that I've ever seen in a Star Trek episode. And they use it for such a stupid thing. <laughs> I'll have to keep an eye out for that. And you should too, friends. Till next time. Yep, next time. Coming of age on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, time to test out our Wesley. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>